Well, what's the impact of the vacancy on the Supreme Court in Kansas and Missouri and across the country? And did the big Senate debate in Kansas change the dynamics of that race? We'll explore both issues on this edition of Deep Background. You're on Deep Background for September 23rd, 2020, six weeks, September 22nd, I guess, six weeks from Election Day. It's hard to believe that we're that close to uh, decision-making in Kansas and Missouri and across the country. I'm Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board. Joining me, my co-host and friend, Derek Donovan, and then uh, a good friend of the podcast and a great reporter, Brian Lowry of the uh, McClatchy DC Bureau, who writes often for the Star. Brian, thanks so much for giving us your time. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm doing well. It's uh, it's obviously, you know, th- there is this effect in Kansas and Missouri of having these marathon primaries that we don't get the decision until <laughs> until August. Really does make the entire general election a real sprint. It's a yeah. it's a very it's a very strange dynamic. So, uh, you know, like you, I think I'm, I am very much, uh, trying to get as much, uh, reporting done, uh, over the next couple of weeks before, uh, voters have to make their choice, which in Kansas starts very soon because large portions of the state vote early in Kansas. All right. And absentee balloting in Missouri starts today, actually. So, uh, although that's a confusing mail-in versus absentee, we won't go down that road today with you, Brian. We will talk about, of course, The big news of last Friday when um, a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, passed away. There were a lot of uh, tributes to her jurisprudence after that news broke, but almost immediately. I was at home with my wife. I saw it on Twitter and turned to my wife and said, this is going to be war. And uh, uh, for the weekend, it seemed that way. And yet today, as we talk on Tuesday, Brian, it seems as if this may end without a big battle because the Republicans simply have the votes. Talk to us about that and the posture of the four Republican senators uh, from our area, Moran, Roberts, uh, Hawley, and Blunt. Well, I think it was it was striking how quickly Leader McConnell moved on this. It was it was very shortly after the news where McConnell announced plans that the Senate would vote on President Trump's nominee. And it should be noted, he made that announcement before Trump was aware that Ginsburg passed away. Uh, There had been a report from ABC that Trump was going to uh, name a successor in days. But at that point, Trump was still on stage in Minnesota speaking. He hadn't found out yet. You know, there is this clip of him finding out, being told by reporters as Elton John plays in the background. It's, It's kind of a surreal clip. Yeah. But McConnell had already set the debate before the president even knew, which was, McConnell made it clear that Republicans were going to move. And it, it was it was kind of interesting observing our four Republicans from the Kansas City area are kind of a, a, an interesting case study for how quickly everybody got on board. And I, I don't think it was really ever that any of them were really in doubt. It was just about how willing you were to say that right away. Uh, Roberts, Moran... And Hawley all put out statements statements of condolence um, on Friday night uh, to Ginsburg's family, and you know it certainly Roberts Moran reflected on her legacy as the second 
uh, female justice. I asked all three of their offices, do you agree with McConnell? And I really, I pressed them on that point before McConnell had said it. And I pressed them harder when he did. Robert's office officially would not answer that question, declined on Friday night. And Moran's spokesman affirmed for me that he did. And so he was, he, that was the first office on record. And then uh, Roy Blunt didn't put anything out Friday night. And it was then he went on the Sunday show. Uh, he went on Face the Nation on Sunday and laid out the case, laid out the Republican case, which it, it really is this striking case because nothing has really cha- changed since 2016. We are much closer to the election than we were when there was the uh, vacancy when Justice Scalia passed away. The only thing that's changed is that now the uh, the party of the Senate and the party of the White House line up. And it's essentially Republicans are just making a point. We have the power. We have the votes. We're going to do it. Yeah. Um, they, they, they've tried to argue that there's a, a big difference between when, when, when the different parties hold it. But I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't recall that being as key of a point that was made in 2016 In 2016, if you look at all their statements, it was very much about giving voters well, of course it was. a say in the process. So yeah, of course it was. You know, Blunt, Blunt laid out the, the point. Now Blunt did caution that it's not guaranteed that they'll get this done before the election, that things have to work very precisely. So, you know, they, he's also setting up there that this might happen in the lame duck, that uh, you might have the American people vote to elect Joe Biden, who's leading the polls right now, and even elect a Democratic Senate, because the Senate right now looks like a coin flip. So it is possible that we will have an incoming uh, Democratic Senate and Democratic president, and that, uh, you know, and that the last act of this Congress Senate will be to essentially give them the middle finger and and and, and affirm uh, and confirm this justice. And so then, let's stay on the our, our local delegation for just a minute because I think the uh, all of the motives. I don't think there was any doubt that all four were going to back right. a vote, but the motives are interesting, and let's explore them for a minute. Roy Blunt's in the leadership, so he was never going to resist McConnell. Never going to t- you know be off the uh, reservations to uh, reservation to coin a coin a phrase, maybe an inappropriate phrase, but he, he was always going to be with McConnell. And of course, Josh Hawley has made the court a huge deal. He's on the Judiciary Committee, so you, you don't get the sense he was going to be a no vote. Jerry Moran potentially faces a primary challenge in 2022, so he doesn't want to let anybody get to his right. The only, the only senator that might have been available some thought was Pat Roberts. I, I scoffed a little bit, but there was some. There were some stories today. There was that idea out there, and I never took it very seriously. But Politico either. had Roberts on its list of six senators to watch, and Chris Coons from Delaware pointed name dropped Roberts um, that uh, he, he could be one. I think Roberts didn't want to comment on that. I think out of respect for Ginsburg's family and for her office on Friday night, but I don't think there was any doubt that he was going to stick with leadership. I mean, when, when Democrats are relying on the son of an RNC chairman to save them, uh, that's, that's when they're in danger. I mean, Pat Roberts, he is, he is in the final year of a 40 year legislative career where he has been a reliable Republican vote the entire time. I don't think that he would have wanted his last act to be blocking a Republican president's justice. That's not how he would want to go out. Right. And so, so you know, so Robert, all four of the senators then for different reasons, we're yeah. clearly going to vote for this nominee. Right. And that's a reflection, right. isn't it, Brian, that for all the hand wringing over the weekend and maybe early in the week, 
the outcome here it was never really in doubt. Well, and it's it, this is actually where Josh Hawley is really key because Josh Hawley is key because he was part of this expansion of the Republican Senate majority, and the two senator the two Republican senators who have said right now they're not going to vote for a nominee before the election are uh, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. They had the power when Kavanaugh was when Kavanaugh was um, up. That those were very key votes that, that leadership needed to make sure was on board. They don't need those votes anymore. You know, Josh Hawley, Rick Scott, these guys give uh, Republicans more uh, wiggle room than they had during the you know Trump's two previous confirmation fights. Now, where Hawley is interesting is Hawley has really. I think set the terms of the debate, and I, I think the debate was, was probably heading this direction, regardless. But he's Holly has spent his summer with these speeches about judicial selection, and, and you're right, it was a hallmark of his 2018 campaign. But there's been this pivot, and I, I talked about this in my piece that was in this morning Star, which is, you know, Holly after there was the case, the court ruled including his old boss, John Roberts, that you can't uh, discriminate, you can't fire someone for being gay or transgender. Hawley took to the Senate floor and lambasted that speech as the end of the conservative legal movement. He at no point uh, addressed what that ruling actually meant for the gay and transgender communities. But instead, he just framed it as we need to change the way in which we choose these judges. And so Hawley has gotten way more focused on policy outcomes as opposed to the overarching judicial philosophies, which is what Republicans typically have favored looking at in these fights. And so he has made this very clear test of he wants someone who is explicitly explicitly believes that Roe v. Wade was um, wrongly decided. And if this was two years ago, that would cost you Susan Collins' vote. But now that you don't need Susan Collins' vote, maybe that is a, a thing that you can do. And it's, it's really – that's partially Hawley really pushing the envelope in terms of how we talk about uh, yeah, But he, he's in a bit of a pickle, isn't he? We don't know who the president is going to nominate yet. But, you know, there, there, some names are out there. But you can see a situation in which a nominee – uh, in testimony before the Judiciary Committee refuses to answer that question. I mean, that's been the tradition forever. So then what does Hawley do? I mean, what? And, and you do get some sense today, don't you, a little bit, Brian, that he's backing off the has-to-be-explicit... Uh, yeah, he's, I think, uh, we're, I think it, you, you did see that yesterday, that the language has softened a little bit. And if you go back to his July speech, it was he's, he wanted them to explicitly acknowledge that Roe v. Wade was wrongly said. He said yesterday he hasn't said a magic words test. Now, I would say that first speech did yes, sound like a magic yes, words test. And it test. put him in a bit but, of a bind because he had to hear, the, if he stuck with it, stuck with it, he, he'd right. have to hear those words or be a no vote at a time when a no vote would be critical. He was never going to be a no right. vote, so there's just a lot of posturing in there. Right, and, and I mean, I, I think I will point out is, the, the favorite of the anti-abortion movement right now is this is Judge uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who's, who's from who's from Indiana. She is obviously she has said in a not in a non-judicial capacity she's a devout Catholic she that she believes life begins at conception. That is still different than saying that you will vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, and that's that's what some people had pointed out to me yesterday. She hasn't actually explicitly said that, and 
you know, Diane Feinstein really did grill her when she went through uh, her confirmation hearings for her current position. And it, at no point does she say exactly how she will rule on Roe v. Wade. That said, Hawley is out there saying it for her that he believes that she passes his test, that it, there's no doubt that she'll vote against Roe v. Wade. So there is a way in which Hawley uh, maybe isn't necessarily helping the case um, you know, of, of this eventual nominee, certainly in selling them to moderate Republicans. And, and there's a way in which Hawley is actually making sure that the the, the Roe v. Wade decision is much more front and center in a way than Republicans would typically want it in these debates where they'd like it to be much more about originalism and overarching philosophy and not actually get into how you would specifically rule in a case. Right. Let, let's, we've got a few minutes before the break, but give us your sense, Brian, from 30,000 feet of how this plays politically. Not necessarily, I want to talk about Roger Marshall and Barb Boyer on the other side of the break. So let's leave them out of it for a minute. But uh, does, does, does this help Democrats? It certainly helped them raise money over the weekend. Does it help in South Carolina? Does it help in Colorado? Does it help in Maine? Does it help in Iowa where Joni Ernst is in a bit of a uh, pickle? I, tell, tell me about your your I mean, I think it, that. It, Obviously, that's why Susan Collins is, is one of the Republicans who says she's not going to vote for this person. I don't think this helps in Maine. I think this is, you know, the traditional idea is that it's Republicans who get revved up about Supreme Court fights. But if your goal was to turn out the Republican base, you wouldn't actually be working to confirm this nominee before the election. You wouldn't be saying that you're going to confirm them this year because your goal would be trying to make the confirmation contingent on electing Republicans. So. Uh, you know, I, I, it's 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 certainly going to be an issue that will be passionate among Republicans. But I think that this is actually maybe a time, particularly because of the vacancy, because it was Ginsburg and she had become this liberal icon, where you really can maybe turn out the Democratic base, and maybe you do turn out people by really tying this to to what's at stake. If you know, if if young women, for example, think that Roe v. Wade is at stake, are they more likely to go to the polls, even if they're not excited about Joe Biden? It, you know, there's a, a lot of ways in which this maybe can be used as a way to turn out the Democratic base in ways that previous judicial fights haven't been. And the Democrats are not typically as good at turning out their base as the Republicans are. But on the other right. hand, on the other hand, Brian, uh, you could make a case that um, uh, Republicans can argue that they've kept a promise, and that the and that they the COVID is now off the radar, which I think was a big concern for Republicans in the president and in Senate races. And you've written a bit of a story about the uh, Affordable Care Act. And so the Democrats are trying to make health care an issue. How does that play out? And then we'll take it. Well, and I think that is actually key, though, is it, well, I don't think COVID's going away. It's still very much going to be one of the central uh, themes of this. But this actually does bring back health care policy uh, because one of, the, one of the cases that is getting heard by the Supreme Court literally the week after the election is on the Affordable Care Act. And this, you know, this there had been the uh, conventional wisdom was that, oh, by the court not hearing it until after the election, you were kind of taking out it out of the political focus that this the fight over this lawsuit wouldn't be as much in the forefront. Now it's it's going to be it, it's potentially going to be the first case that Ginsburg's successor hears. It's going to be the first major case. And 
this is going to be really a thing that 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 puts healthcare policy, not just the not just COVID, but puts general healthcare policy really at the forefront because people have gotten so used to so many of these things from the ACA, like the the fact that you can be you can stay, stay on your parents' plan until 26, like the protections for pre-existing conditions. They're, they're very much part of the healthcare system now. And you also have states like Missouri, states that are red states, states that are actually the plaintiff states seeking to overturn this, where the voters voted by a wide margin to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. So, it, I, you know, I don't think there, there's kind of this, there's kind of this general sense that anything, that anything that would take you off of the track that the election is, uh, was on helps Trump. And that makes sense because Biden had seemed to have this pretty solid trajectory. But I, I also think that there are aspects of uh, this vacancy and aspects of like one of the first cases that this court is going to hear potentially with this, with this new justice that do actually do actually help put out the democratic base. I think what we'll get to probably in the next segment is how this has really become a base election. No yeah. one's trying to persuade swing voters right now. They're trying to turn out they're trying to turn out the people they know are already yeah. for them. My argument is always if you're an undecided voter by this point, you're not going to vote. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Brian Lowry and Derek Donovan. I do want to talk about the Kansas Senate race. You're on deep background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to the star for $1.99 total. That's right, you get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to KansasCity.com background. And hey, thanks for listening. Back on Deep Background, Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board and Derek Donovan. Joining us with Brian Lowry from the McClatchy, D.C. Bureau. Uh, Brian, thanks for chatting with us. Okay, so uh, we've talked about the Supreme Court opening, which uh, made the news Friday. Saturday, we had the first and maybe the only debate, at least for now, in the Kansas Senate contest between uh, Congressman uh, Representative Roger Marshall and and state representative, state senator Bar Boyer. I thought it was a pretty good debate. I thought, you know, for it wasn't the state fair debate. There wasn't a lot of screaming and and sign waving and all the stuff we've come to love about that affair. But it did seem pretty substantial, tilted a little bit toward agriculture. But by and large, they did engage pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was an intense debate. Both candidates spent a large part of it on the attack. Now. Marshall probably spent the most time on the attack. Like he was on the attack for, for the entirety of the debate, you know. And and, and but Boyer probably had the mo- what I considered the most brutal line of the, yeah. of the debate when she managed to both hit Marshall on fiscal policy, but also bring up the reckless driving case from two thousand eight when she yeah. told him that his fiscal policy was as reckless as his driving. So like. It, it was, the, there. you know, this was an intense debate, uh, at times personal, 
um, it's, you know, it's one of those things where you don't want to overemphasize the importance of it because it's not everybody spent their Saturday watching this debate on the Facebook live stream like you and I did. Uh, there are certainly moments where each candidate got in some good shots, but it really does get into there are very clear policy contrasts between these two candidates. And to your point is, you know, it's if you've heard both of these candidates, it should be really tough to be an undecided voter. They, there are very clear distinctions on a number of issues uh, from, you know, just COVID-19 being one of them. I mean, that was obviously... Uh, Tim Carpenter from the Kansas Reflector asked uh, one of the, I believe it was the final question of the debate, asked about whether or not um, rhetoric had Trump science and whether that was, you know, causing problems with the ability to uh, prevent the spread of COVID-19. And Marshall, uh, you know, who is a medical doctor, just like Bollier, um, essentially dismissed that idea. And he also contended uh, without without any scientific evidence that uh, an economic shutdown uh, would kill more people than the virus. Yeah. And Bollier really went after him hard for not modeling uh, proper behavior, for not taking the virus seriously. So, you know, it, COVID-19 being one of the key issues, I think, in pretty much every race, whether you look at the Missouri governor's race, whether you look at, like, the congressional races in the region and this race, and the presidential race, uh, there's very clear contrast between the two of them, even though they're both doctors. And, on and, and let me try this theory out on you and see if you agree. Uh, I, I think at the margins, it was a very close exchange, and maybe Marshall had the advantage in terms of the things he believes more closely matching rural Kansas. I mean, that's the whole that's the whole theory. But uh, I thought Boyer did well in part because people listening probably had never heard from her before ever. I mean, it's not as if she's a well-known figure outside of the Kansas city area. She's not, you know, you see commercials and stuff, but in terms of just hearing her talk about issues, Brian, that may be the first exposure that a lot of voters ever had to her in that sense. And she's also and, and not I doing the she did well, right? Yeah. She's, also, she's also not doing the barnstorming to the same degree as Marshall right. is because that's actually, that's a point of contrast where she's been very cautious about that given the pandemic. Um, you know, I think they both had some strong moments. You know, one thing I think that is worth noting about Marshall, and this is why it's, it's an effective strategy is Marshall didn't really have a debate with Boyer. He had a debate with AOC and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. And that is, you know, that's a well-worn strategy. You know, we're used to, as reporters, we're used to politicians not ask, answering the questions we asked, but answering the questions they wish we had asked. And that's another thing is don't debate your opponent. Debate the depo- opponent you wish you had. And so he kept going after the Green New Deal, which Barbara Boyer doesn't support. But um, he kept going after it and saying, well, she belongs to the party that believes this. And, you know, at one point, one of the moderators who was from one of the, the agriculture publications said something like, well, Senator Boyer has brought up the Green New Deal a couple of times and I'm at home. I'm like, no, she hasn't. No. She's not brought it up she's at all. She said three she's, times I'm not, I, I don't support the Green New Deal. So, I also was uh, uh, tickled by uh, Marshall's uh, repeated claim that Boyer left the Republicans to go to the Democrats because she doesn't share Kansas values 
or Republican values, which I think he said enough that you get a sense that it might have been a tested line or something that they really want to get over. But but that seemed risky to me, too, because it, it, that, that may play in Russell or Great Bend or Garden City. But in Johnson County, where there are a lot of votes, there are a lot of Republicans who say, hey, the party left me. I didn't leave it. And that's where the Kassebaum endorsement makes a difference. And so, and, and again, for as unknown as Boye is in Western Kansas, there's still a lot of people in this side of the state who don't know Roger Marshall from a hill of beans. I think that one thing is clear is that Marshall's strategy in the general election is very similar to his primary strategy, which I think he is hoping to um, really turn out a strong vote percentage in Western Kansas and to do well in the Wichita area. And so he, I don't think he's think I don't think he's aimed at the Johnson County area. I think he's, I think the campaign has, in to some extent, has seeded that area. He certainly has had campaign stops here. He certainly is hoping to do as well uh, in in Johnson County as possible. But so, to some extent, it, there seems to be a recognition of that Spolier's territory. I'm not going to persuade the swing voters there. So what I need to do is actually drive out the Trump voters in the rest of the states. Um, it's it's why it's become much more of a base election than a a persuasion election. He's not making the gestures towards moderates that maybe you would expect uh, him to make. That uh, but he, he instead he seems to be focused on getting the Trump supporters out there. He obviously went after her very aggressively on abortion. You know, I thought I thought Boyer made it very clear where she stood on abortion that she is is very strongly in favor of abortion rights. Uh, he made it very clearly he's, he's very much opposed. But there is this moment that Marshall's campaign is tweeting out where instead of the actual questions to him, he started trying to ask Boyer uh, his which own violated question. the rules. Yeah. Which, yeah, which was in violation of the rules. But is but when your, go- your goal is to get a clip, it worked out, I guess. And I, I think he's hoping that that will be his equivalent of the d- famous Dole attack on Bill Roy in 1974. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was also, well, don't you think, but Brian, isn't it, don't you think particularly in, you know, 2020 that people who are undecided in that race are not undecided on abortion as their determining right. issue. I mean, right. it's not like, I don't know, I'm really pro-life, but I don't know who I'm going to vote for or pro-choice. If that's an important issue to you, you made your choice a long time ago in that race. Well, and I talked to I talked to Burdett Loomis um, at KU about this recently, and he talked about the difference between say seventy four when Dole used that as an attack was it was about persuading people, persuading people maybe who had been particularly democratic leaning Catholics who uh, who who could maybe come over and vote for the Republican. Now it's more about turning out the base, and I yeah. think that I think that's the the point I'm just trying to make about the Marshall campaign is he's not trying to persuade the swing voters at this point. He's trying to run up the margins on, um, he's trying to run up the margins on the people that he knows are for him. Uh, whereas Boyer, it's, it is, the, it is actually more of a persuasion campaign. That's what the cast of endorsements about. That's what all of these moderate Republican endorsements about. And our advertising is very much geared at kind of comforting people who have always voted for Republican in every federal race, maybe they voted for Sibelius, maybe they voted for Kelly before, but like voting for a senator uh, who would be a Democrat uh, would be a new thing for them. It's kind of like comforting, trying to comfort them and give them permission. So yeah, what, 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 uh, um, let me ask you this. What, 
what impact, if any, does the Trump Biden race have on the Senate race in your view? I, I think it actually has a, a huge impact on the race in that if we assume that Trump is going to win Kansas, which I think we do, yes. that actually indicates to you how difficult Barbara Boyer's task is. Because who is that voter who is going to cast the vote for Donald Trump and then turn around and vote for Barbara Boyer in the U.S. Senate race? I don't know that there's a lot of those voters out there. So I think that's one of her essential challenges It's is that there will be people who are going out to vote for Donald Trump and they will just go ahead and vote for Roger Marshall. It's not that it's not that they're it's not that it's even a, it's it's not that it's even that it's a focus in terms of shaping the rhetoric in the race or the issues in the race, but in terms of the pure mechanics of who it brings out to vote, um, I do think it affects it. Well, what about said, what about? Let me ask you this: What about the other direction? How many people can go into a voting booth again, say in Johnson County, and say, "God, I hate Trump." He's just too much for me. I'm voting for Biden, but I can't vote for a Democrat for Senate. Right. And, I, I, and I that's, that's an escape valve for them. I think that's a key where Biden is is doesn't have the isn't the drag that, say, maybe Hillary Clinton would maybe be state Correct. statewide. That said, I mean, I think that's where it's more important for, say, Sharice Davids in the third district, which I think we do anticipate that the third district will go for Biden, will probably go for Boyer. And right now, certainly Sharice Davids is uh, favored to win, um, favored to win that race. The problem for Boyer is she's in a statewide race, and so it's are there enough of those people statewide who will either vote for Trump and vote for Boyer, or vote for Trump and then skip the Senate race? The the math is very difficult, and I think you know Marshall's figuring he'll, he'll get in on the Trump coattails effect, which is why his his rhetoric has so closely matched uh, Trump's. Um, even when even when you could maybe think you could make the case that he could build a bigger lead by, you know, putting a little bit of distance and yeah. and, and reaching out. She'll have we got six weeks to go. She has plenty of cash, more cash than he does. We don't get the sense, though, do we, that the Republicans think this seat is in such jeopardy that they're pouring a lot of third party money in. Right, Brian? I mean, this is still nationally seen as a lean Republican race. Stronger. There's a, and I, I believe, you know, I believe 538 put out its model, which essentially has, uh, you know, it, 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 it certainly favors, strongly favors Marshall to win it. You have seen some national Republican spending. It shows that they're, they're sweating it a little bit. I don't, they're not quite sounding off the alarm bells, but I think you're, you do make a point that Boyer may end up being the overall cash leader as far as the candidates on the race, but there may end up being still slightly more Republican spending when you when you count what the Senate Leadership Fund has put in. Look, there's Democrat Democratic groups like Emily's List are still very bullish that this is a sleeper race, that this is one that they they can win. And and, and look, Boyer has certainly ran, I think, the strongest campaign we've seen from a Democrat for a Senate race in Kansas in years. I mean, I mentioned I mentioned 1974 before. I think this is this is at least going to be probably the closest Senate race we've had since 74. But in 74, Dole still eked out a narrow victory. So, right, and Dole, of course, was an incumbent at the time, which Roger Marshall is not. It's an open seat, right. and the dynamics were a little bit different. But you also get the sense, don't you, that the Boyer campaign kind of likes being under the radar. 
You know, no, th th this isn't the, you know, Joni Ernst race. This isn't Tom Tillis. This isn't Corey Gardner. You can just sort of quietly spend your money and quietly do your thing and then get Marshall at the end. Yeah, and, and look, hope for a bit of a wave, a Biden wave, and a, you know, I, a, a collapse of Trump. I, I think there's a, a very good chance this, this could be a single digits race either way. Like, I, I don't think that either campaign's theory of the race involves the kind of double digit landslides that we're used to in Kansas for uh, for Senate races. Uh, this is going to be, you know. The funny thing is, like people, the people when they bring up like recent Senate elections in Kansas, they bring up 2014 because Moran's 2016 race was such a landslide. It's going to be very different from Moran's 2016 race, which was the last time that Trump was on the ballot, and you know Moran won by 30 points more. It was a, yeah. it, it, you know, this is going to be a lot closer than that. Um, I, it's still though. It's I think the thing is just to, to like that that Boyer is just ultimately the underdog given the overall mechanics of Kansas in that it is a state where Republicans have a big registration advantage yeah. and that it's, it's, there's just some internal dynamics. And you, didn't, and you didn't see, and nor did I anything in the debate last Saturday that would change that presumed trajectory, even though Boyer may have done, a good job of introducing herself and standing toe to toe with Marshall, getting in a zinger or two. Yeah. It they, both got really good, they both got good shots, but I don't think any candidate had a gaffe that was apocalyptic. And I also don't think any candidate had some line that was going to like, you know, to have yeah, some really sort of We're not going to look back 10 years from now and going, boy, yeah. that, that was like the mud thing that yeah. back in it was an interesting thing to, to, to see the state fair debate transformed into this digital thing i mean you and i know you you and i were both at um the 2014 state fair together which was a very memorable one uh where pat roberts and greg orman went at it and people were yelling out harry reed from yeah. the crowd so you did yeah, miss a little bit 17 of, uh, or 18 times yeah <laughs> Brian, I appreciate you coming on so much, and it's such an interesting race. We'll, we'll, we're six weeks out. Let's check in and again in a couple of weeks and see what we think is happening in Kansas there and in, of course, the congressional races, which are important too, and we'll keep an eye on Missouri. Brian Lowry from the McClatchy, D.C. Bureau. Again, thanks so much for joining us. And Derek Donovan, my colleague, again, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, I'm Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board, and you have once again been on Deep Background.